It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 42, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. My guest today is Valley Flora's Zoe Bradbury. Zoe grew up on her family homestead in southern Oregon, just a few miles from the Pacific Ocean. She left at 16 and came back many years later to a farm where her mother and sister had started growing and selling vegetables. Many years later, Valley Flora feeds over 100 CSA members and provides produce to dozens of restaurants and stores in the 50-mile radius around their farming collective, as well as a farm stand and UPIC operation on the farm. We discuss how she, her sister, and her mother have integrated the troublemaker of the family, that's Zoe, into the existing farming ventures, including the nuts and bolts of how the three separate farming operations cooperate to market together and share resources. Zoe shares her experience about the joys and challenges of farming with children, integrating horses into the operation, marketing in a rural environment, and living off the farm. Zoe brought a ton of energy and insight to this conversation. I hope you get as much out of it as I did. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Vermont Compost. Founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality composts and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by BCS America. BCS two wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSAmerica.com. Zoe Bradbury, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be with you. Thanks so much for making time this morning. It's I know it's kind of a it's a gray and rainy day here in the Upper Midwest. I'm you live in Oregon on the coast, so I assume it's a gray and rainy day there as well. Believe it or not, we live in this pretty remarkable pocket where we get these great, crazy, blustery, hundred mile an hour wind storms and pelting hail, and then the next day it'll be blue skies and sunny. And so we're having a blue sky and sunny day. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for taking time on a blue sky and sunny day to talk to us here. Sure. Like I do with all of my guests, I, I've gone and done a little bit of snooping around on the internet. So I happen to know that you, you grew up there on the piece of land that you're farming now. That's, that's right. Yeah. We're in Southern Oregon, about 70 miles north of the California border, just a few miles inland from the coast. And um, that's right. There's, there's 80 acres up Flores Creek that my family, my mom and dad, stumbled upon back in the late early mid 70s um it's been 40 years now that my mom's there so i think it was early 70s wow. and uh it's actually a funny story i mean it's it's not like i come from a farming family run deep in the blood or anything like that i mean my folks were my mom was born in manhattan my dad was from chicago they ended up in san francisco on a work study antioch college gig came up to the Oregon coast for a weekend and really, really liked it. And they, they fell into the restaurant business with some friends and pretty much decided after a year of flipping burgers and making milkshakes for the church crowd that maybe that wasn't quite what they wanted to do. And they, uh, they ended up, well, I should say my dad, <laughs> he traded the restaurant for 40 acres up Flores Creek. And, you know, it was, it's hard to imagine now because it's such the center of the universe for us all. But back then, you know, it was a rundown farmhouse and my mom just took one look and said, are you crazy? What are you doing? <laughs> so they, you know, they settled there. And my mom actually is the one who really, really fell deep for the place. And my dad, meanwhile, got into a, poli uh, a political career and ran for elected office. And his, his whole trajectory took him to Salem and into state office um, for the, you know, the rest of my childhood. But 
my mom really settled in there and ultimately and my sister and I were both born there in the house, home birth, and grew up there just, you know, fully immersed in that valley and Forest Creek and all the surrounding hills and forests and creeks and I mean it was a it was about as good a place to grow up in Rome as you could imagine for a kid. Um, yeah, kind of full hippie in Southern Oregon. Well, you know, my mom would deny that to her. She will deny that to her grave that she was ever a hippie. And we, we've teased her and said, you know, I've seen those photos of you and those bell bottoms and that long hair parted down the middle. And I mean, you really, really look like the album cover mom. <laughs> and she, no, 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 no. I was never a hippie. I was never a hippie. <laughs> so, I don't know. You, you can, you can draw your own conclusions from, you know, the 70s, Southern <laughs> Oregon, back to the land, call it what you want. But she, uh, nevertheless, I mean, she figured out how to carve out a life there and a small livelihood and raise Abby and I. Abby's my older sister, three years, my senior. And um, yeah, I mean, she just sort of put herself into that, into that world and that reality, having never grown up with it, never run a chainsaw or, you know, built a chicken coop or grown her own vegetable garden. And she just figured it out. So we grew up with a great garden. And, um, by the time I was six, she'd gotten into raising sheep for meat production. So we had a flock of sheep that I helped with when I was a kid. And, um, but no, no like commercial vegetable operation the way it is now. That really didn't happen until fast forward, you know, 15 years when Abby and I were in college and started to get real interested in that, that side of farming. So, yeah. So we, you, you left the farm and, and went to Stanford, right? I did. Yeah. I actually, I left the farm actually when I was 16, which was both exciting and utterly heartbreaking because I obviously, you know, loved where I grew up more than anywhere in the whole world. But the school system was for want of certain stimuli. <laughs> I mean, rural, <laughs> rural timber economy, um, tax base based on on the timber, the tanking timber industry. So the public schools were not exactly where I was getting my education. I guess I, we were lucky that our folks really got us out in the world, and we traveled with them, and they exposed us to all kinds of great things and zany individuals and eccentric experiences and, you know, gave us some perspective other than this Curry County. Um, so when I was 16, I got a, an offer to go to Simon's Rock College in Massachusetts, which is a early entry college in the Berkshires, um, a part of Bard College. And they take kids, you know, who are sophomores in high school and you basically drop out of high school and then you go and get either a two or a four year degree there on campus. So I ended up getting a full ride scholarship for two years there. And I, it was just you know, like too much money to turn down knowing how much college costs and, and also, you know, intriguing the idea of going back East and diving into something more academic. So off I went and Abby actually, she was three years older than I, but had taken a year off after she graduated from high school. And that same year she went to Middlebury in Vermont. So both, okay. My mom lost both of her little birdies from the nest in the same. And, like, and lost both of you to the East Coast yeah, too. Within That's kind of brutal. Each other. It was. I think it was really brutal. Now that I'm a parent, I I can barely imagine what she went through. It, oh. <laughs> so I mean, we had East Coast ties because of my mom's family being from back east, and we'd spent quite a bit of time there, and uh, quite a bit of time in Vermont actually with with friends there. And my mom was conceived in Stowe, Vermont, so she had major 
connections to that part of the world. But nevertheless, you know, there we were 3000 miles away. I was 16 and app was 19. And, um, yeah, got, I got my start in school those two years early, basically got an associate's degree when I would have been getting a high school diploma and then took a year off, ultimately transferred to Stanford and finished up my BA there. Okay. Um, yeah. And then, and then did some other things before you came back to the farm, right? Yeah. You know, I kind of launched out of, out of my undergrad with this real social mission, like probably a lot of a lot of my generation has wanting to, you know, change the world and make it a better place. And so I got into the nonprofit world in the sustainable ag context and was, I worked for a whole bunch of different organizations um, from, you know, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy out in Minneapolis to the ALBA in the Salinas Valley. And all of it was, you know, advocating for sustainable ag or for farm workers or organics or a variety of things that projects I worked on. But, you know, within a couple of years of being at the desk in front of the computer, I was really starting to realize that I wasn't feeling happy or fulfilled and it was it was hard to come to terms with why that was because all these mission statements that uh, for these organizations I worked for were fantastic and had great projects on the ground. But you know, it finally dawned on me like I I want to be the person doing the farming, not not the person supporting the farmers. So I um I ended up moving up to Portland, Oregon. I got a job as a crew manager at Sovi Island Organics and spent the next three years working full time with them. And that was phenomenal. I had, it was sort of like, you know, organic farming grad school where I got to be part of the management crew and I had the really fortunate situation of having a salary and health insurance and all those things right. that are sometimes all those really nice, nice <laughs> benefits. Yeah. 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 And, and often just out in the ether when you're farming and, you know, also got to like basically learn everything about that operation from, you know, the irrigation systems and the harvest systems and the varieties we grew and the timing and the, the planning tools and, and the whole marketing side of it. It was just full immersion. And I completely credit my time at Sylvia Island Organics for setting me up to be able to, to launch my own business successfully because they had great systems and great, great staff and, yeah, I just learned a ton there. So you were there for a few years. And then if I understand correctly, you made the move back to back home. I did. Yeah, I actually, after I, I left Sylvia Island, I, I went back and got my master's degree. And I used my master's um, in part to prepare for starting my own farm business. Um, I was able to do my business plan. I, it was it was crafty. <laughs> I, I did some serious <laughs> double dipping that really, you know, by the time I came out of grad school, I had a master's, but I also had a business plan and, you know, budgets and all the business side of things, plus a crop plan for my first season. Um, so I moved back in 2008 and we had been preparing for my return for a year or so, we'd, we'd put up a deer fence around the rest of our bottom land in 2007 and then cover cropped it that winter and then started my first actual year of production and cash cropping in 2008 at a pretty small scale. You know, I, I basically came home to a small farm that was already in existence. Um, I have to back us up to 98, 99 when Abby and I um, both went off to college like I said, she ended up at Middlebury and she um, became friends with and then ultimately started dating Pete Johnson, who I know, you know, oh, through the podcast. Yeah. 
So yep, Pete's Pete been of, on the podcast. Pete's Greens in, in Vermont. He and Abby were together for a few years while she was at college. And that was the same time that Pete was just getting really interested in farming as well. And his senior thesis was to build an unheated greenhouse on the Middlebury campus and to grow salad greens through that through the winter in an unheated greenhouse. And Abby helped him build it. And she, she just had this epiphany, like, if you can grow salad mix in an unheated greenhouse through a frigid Vermont winter – you sure as hell can grow salad greens outside in a mild Oregon summer. <laughs> so she, um, <laughs> she came home and we had intended to have a little pesto farm the year before we had, we had quit our jobs, our summer jobs, um, landscaping for a local lady. We were tired of, you know, shoveling gravel and bark mulch for minimum wage and working for someone else. So the, the entrepreneurial spirit was born in us of, you know, a product of just sheer, <laughs> worker misery <laughs> right <laughs> someone else and so we we decided we would have a pesto farm so we were going to plant garlic we came home at christmas break from the east coast planted garlic in our bottom land and we were going to plant the basil and and make pesto this was our grand idea you know no certified kitchen anywhere in sight and all those details we hadn't really thought out but yeah. so so it would turn out it was a major el nino year and the whole bottom field flooded and rotted our garlic. So when we came home from school in, in May at the end of the year, um, Abby turned it under and decided to grow salad mix instead. And it was great. The, the famous line in our family is <laughs> my mom, ever the, ever the skeptic and cynic says, this is, this is Curry County. No one is going to buy that yuppie food here. <laughs> well, and, and, okay, and seriously, because when, I had some contact with Southern Oregon back in like the very early 1990s and and late 80s. And my memory then is, I mean, this was an area where they used to have bounties on ponytails. Yeah. And and they and 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 they used to offer bounties on on spotted owls. I mean, yeah. this was not this was not a real um she she no. upscale uh left-leaning type of community. Not so much. Yeah, and you know, that's kind of the beauty of it too, is that it's not all that. It's not Portland. It's not Montpelier. It's, it's its own crusty blend. <laughs> and honestly, that at that time in, um, you know, late nineties, when Abby decided to do this, she was a little bit ahead of the curve, but lucky for her, there were just enough receptive chefs and a couple of, you know, the health food stores um, and combined with all that, an absolutely beautiful product that she started to produce, um, it flew. And it didn't, it didn't hurt at all that she was this gorgeous 20-year-old lass going to town and knocking on the back doors of these restaurants and offering up this gorgeous salad behind, you know, in front of this gorgeous face. And, and uh, we used to joke that we had, we needed to get her a fake wedding ring to go on her delivery route because she was getting, you know, all kinds of proposals, <laughs> all these, these kitchens around town. Of course um, it's possible the salad greens wouldn't have sold as well. Right. right. <laughs> so that, that first summer, she basically started to develop this really loyal clientele because she, Abby's a perfectionist and she, she doesn't let, a single marred leaf go past her in her wash tub. So, you know, and she's still that way. She, there's beautiful flowers in her mix and every leaf is cut at the perfect place. No stem, no cut leaf, you know, it's just phenomenal. And, um, she just developed a really solid reputation for this, this quality product that 
obviously where we live, you know, we're like the last stop on the, the Cisco truck. So the stuff that these, these restaurants and stores are used to getting starts to rot the day they get it, or it's already started to rot when they receive it. So to get this totally fresh product that lasts for a couple of weeks and is, is beautiful to behold, I think it was, it was an easy sell. So she, um, she started that business and then of course she wasn't done with college. So she had, you know, three months at home and then in late August had to go back to Vermont. And my mom, who's no dummy, basically took note, having, having had to eat her words about no one's going to buy that yummy food. (laughs) And, uh, she, she realized, well, I mean, it's only August. I might as well keep cutting those greens while Abby's at school. So she finished off Abby's outdoor season and then, you know, the wheels are turning in my mom's head and she realizes, well, I can keep this going through the winter and keep all these accounts happy so that, you know, it's just this constant supply. It's ready to go when Abby comes home from college again. So she decided to put up a couple of greenhouses and start growing them indoors through the winter. So we basically start this, this whole system where we've got Abby's greens from May through October and then Abby's mom's greens from <laughs> November <laughs> through, through April. Um, and that's still how it is to this day. My mom actually still does the winter greens production, even though Abby now lives here full time. Um, and Abby does the outdoor season. But in that way, my mom essentially backed herself into the produce business unwittingly because she had put up these greenhouses that she grew salad in through through cold months. And then she had these empty greenhouses in the summer. So she started growing tomatoes and peppers and basil and cukes and eggplants. And, you know, where we are, it's not blazing hot in the summer. So most of the solanaceous crops and the cucurbits and basil, it, it can use a little help from from some greenhouse plastic. So. Yeah, because you mentioned that you were right down there on the coast. Yeah, yeah. And we're, you know, we're about four miles inland, so we're just out of the fog belt, and we have a pretty fierce north wind here in the summer. So fortunately, we're up the valley, so that wind is mostly blocked. And we have a, a really sweet microclimate, given, you know, given what the rest of it is like just a few miles down the road. Um, but still, yeah, to get a, you know, to get a tomato in July, we need a greenhouse. So anyway, suddenly my mom is, you know, selling produce right alongside Abby and they're delivering out the back of the Volvo station wagon and just going around town and, and selling their stuff. And it went on like that for, gosh, like eight, nine years until, yeah, until I came back in 2008. And that's when we, we did the big expansion out into the rest of the bottomland. So one of the things that I think is really interesting that you do in your farm is, I mean, you came back and became part of the farm, but at the same time, you've got your own operation. Can yeah. you tell us a little bit about how that whole setup works? Yeah, this this often, well, even a lot of people who buy our food locally don't even know we're set up this way because it's confusing to them. But, you know, because my mom and sister already had their businesses going when I returned, there obviously was some, some growing pains and concerns about my arrival that, you know, I've always been teased about being the, the one in the family who likes to stir things up. And, um, and unlike my sister, I really like change. I like the challenge of something new and she likes to figure something out and do it really well and consistently. And, and so, and my mom, meanwhile, this is like her place, her land, her life, her little bliss bubble. And, and so uh-oh, like here comes the, the youngest ready to here comes shake, trouble. Yeah, shake things yeah. up on the farm. <laughs> um, and so we ultimately decided that 
it wasn't going to work to just all clump together and be one business because it wasn't, I was an unknown. They didn't know. And I didn't know how much I was going to grow and what I was going to make. And obviously there was a ton of work um, for me to get started in terms of developing the field I was going to use. And so it just seemed easier to stay three separate businesses. Um, and we did that. We've all established ourselves as individual LLCs. My mom has one, Abby has one, and I have one. And then we created a fourth entity, an LLC, that is Valley Flora. And Valley Flora operates as pretty much just the distribution umbrella. And at the end of the day, QuickBooks sorts it all out for us so we know what to pay ourselves at the end of each month. Um, every single thing we sell in QuickBooks is coded to an account. So if it leaks on the invoice, it's going into the Zoe sales bucket. And if it's Abby's greens, it's going into Abby's. And if it's tomatoes, it's going into my mom's. And so it's a really simple, easy, quick tool. At the end of the month, we just print out a custom summary report and everyone gets paid. So Valley Flora as a, as a distributor isn't marking anything up. It's just a pass through. And it's worked really, really beautifully because it meant that as a family, we could all farm together (laughs) side by side, but there's none of, none of the tension around being told what to do by someone else or working more or less than someone else. Everyone just can be their independent operator and um and we can still have a nice time on family dinner night at the end of the week you know it's it because there were so i mean there were regardless even though we did it this way there was still a lot of growing pains the first couple years and sorting things out and trying to figure out okay well who's responsible for how much of that irrigation mainline you know or or the deer fence or these major infrastructure investments um the new barn the walk-in cooler the all that stuff that had to get paid for and it it still wasn't totally clear how much of it each of us was going to be using or, or responsible for. And we've since, how did you guys, how did you resolve those kinds of issues? Cause I mean, that's, those seem like the sorts of things that like, well, we can figure it out. But I also know that those are, those are the kinds of things that can tear partnerships apart. Yeah. Yeah. And we definitely had our fair share of tears and disagreements. Um, But fortunately, you know, the love prevailed (laughs) and ultimately the way we deal with it is by percentage. So, um, QuickBooks again is our friend there. And we know at the end of a season, what percentage of the sales were mine and what percent were Abby's and what percent were my mom's. And so any expenses that accrue throughout the year to Valley Flora, we, we actually have this epic end of year settle up that (laughs) it used to be a three day meeting where we, we all got together with our checkbooks and our laptops and all of our records. And we just like write checks back and forth (laughs) three days (laughs) trying to settle out all of the shared expenses. And we've gotten it honed so that it's really a one day thing now. And, you know, we know what we need to know to, to settle it up. Um, so there's still, there is still that element to it. Um, and at this point, this percentages that each of us take in a year are pretty consistent. Like I'm about 65, 68% of, of the gross on the farm and Abby's about 22 and my mom's the balance or it's something like that. Um, that first year we didn't know yet. And I obviously was my first year and I wasn't growing a lot yet. So in that, in that first year, I think um, that was why there was as much tension as there was because it wasn't, we didn't have clear cut percentages or numbers yet to, to base any of those, those 
payouts on. But it, even that said, we did a pretty good job of, I think, of making it equitable. Um, and everyone just sometimes has to sort of take a knee and <laughs> do it for the, for the team. And it all hopefully evens out in the end and everyone can feel like it's fair. So you guys, um, you guys market all your product together and it's not all going just to stores and restaurants. You also do a CSA. Yeah. Right. So yeah, the public knows us as Valley Flora. We just, it, it keeps it simpler that way. Um, and we are just one entity in the, in the eyes of the public. And the CSA is probably over half of the growth on the farm. We have 110 shares that we market and we don't offer any different, you know, split shares or different sizes. It's just one size fits all. Um, and so a number of people will share a share cause it's a lot of food. So I don't know actually how many mouths are eating it, but it's definitely a few hundred folks. Um, okay. and the way that works is I manage the CSA and my mom and sister though, because my mom has, you know, a whole corner on certain products like tomatoes and peppers and all these things that are staples in the CSA at, at points of the year. Um, she grows them and then basically sells them, to the CSA at wholesale and delivers them down to our barn um, for pack out. So she knows that, for instance, on a Tuesday, she needs to come up with, you know, enough peppers for 58 members and enough tomatoes for 58 members. And whether it's by the pound or by the count, she'll get all of her stuff sorted up in her packing shed, um, which is right next to our house. Our barn is just down at the bottom of the driveway where the cooler is and the big wash tables and pack out space. And, you know, by two o'clock or three o'clock on Tuesday, she'll have delivered all of her stuff into the barn so that we can then assemble and pack all of the boxes. Um, and then she just invoices QuickBooks for, for that produce, whatever she provided to CSA that day. And at the end of the month, she gets paid for her CSA produce out of the CSA account. Um, so it works pretty slick. It seems like an, an interesting combination of touchy feely and, <laughs> and QuickBooks, yeah. frankly. Ideally, I always, I mean, I always like to say, you know, that you should be making your decisions with your head, but you should be making them from your heart. That's great. Yeah. Know? Yeah. So do you think it's, it would be different if you were doing this with, with friends rather than with family or with, with people who were, who your primary relationship was through the business? Not necessarily. I mean, you can't really argue with QuickBooks. So it's, it's been great in that way. It just takes, it, it just turns it into this objective thing as opposed to a subjective emotional battleground. And um, I think it would work even with just a, a friend or, yeah, another business partner. What's been the biggest challenge about doing it with family? Well, I guess those challenges evolve as the farm matures. You know, we're in our eighth season and a lot of things are now pretty stable and reliable. But in the beginning, it had a lot to do with, with I guess, um, disturbing the bliss, the lifestyle bliss that my mom had really cultivated around herself for 30 years. She, she's, she's just 
created a place that everyone wants to be. <laughs> it's, it's totally wonderful. And, and so to have this business suddenly pop up and, and kind of explode around her life and there's all this more, you know, more traffic on her driveway and just more chaos and stress because we're suddenly running this much higher profile business. Um, and it's in startup mode. So there's money stress and there's, there's, infrastructure that has to be built. We, you know, we need a cooler. Ah, now ah, it's June. Ah, um, that kind of stuff. It's, it's just inevitable that it sort of seeped over into her life, which she, she had really cultivated a, a life of making just enough money and loving her evenings on her back porch while the sun goes down and her afternoons at the Creek for a swim in the summer. And, um, and yeah, my arrival definitely, <laughs> I don't know. We still do those things, but there's just a, a faster pace about the place now because of the business. And she was adamant that, you know, she wanted to protect that. And I really, I really respect her for that because, you know, at that time I was 26 or 27 and, and in that highly energetic business startup life startup place. And she was 50 something and <laughs> kind of on the other side of that hill. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's where the tension really arose was me feeling like, you know, here I am trying to make my business and my life livelihood grow wings on her land and not having ownership of it and not having full control or power over the things she said I couldn't, could and couldn't do. And we definitely locked horns a number of times and I, and I felt indignant like, Oh, just, you know, like there's a stranglehold over me, but ultimately we we've mellowed into our relationship and I think really come to appreciate and respect how all the parts work together to support each other. You know, she, it's, it's, it's pretty beautiful choreography now. Um, now that everyone maybe has just gotten used to the new reality or, or we've also tamed it back a little bit cause we're not in startup mode. And, and you're not 27 anymore. Not 27. I'm now mother of two and I have a husband and, you know, it's, it's like, okay, I have a family that needs my time and attention also. And, and that was, a, you know, especially this year, I, had, I have a 10 month old and to suddenly be farming with two kids in tow, I, I definitely had, I had the hardest season ever this year of just trying to pull it off and, and have enough hours in the day to nurse a baby and get a, kid off to preschool and get to the harvest in time to or to farm in time to harvest before it's too hot and find the childcare. And, Oh man, I, I had moments where I, I said words I'd never said out loud, which is, I don't, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can do this. I've never said that. Oh, I, I thought, I thought, I thought maybe they were four letter words that you hadn't said out loud. <laughs> oh, oh man. But so, you know, it's really humbling to, to come up against that and, um, and just, to realize that, okay, I, I, all the last four years of having Cleo, my, my first child, I have been a farmer and oh yeah, I have a kid and she's, you know, in the backpack comes with me goes with me everywhere, a part of the farm. Now that there's two and you've got like a four year old and an infant, I had to realize like, I'm okay. I'm a mother and I'm a farmer too. It, it had to, it had to flip a little bit in, in order for me to not lose my mind, you know, to recognize that these human beings that I've given life to, they have needs. And it's like, Oh my God, you have to poop again now. <laughs> you know, just, just when you're getting started on something and you finally like, Oh, and then you get interrupted and you gotta 
says, take a deep breath and okay, here we go. We're going to go poop. <laughs> so, so tell me about that. Not, not so much about the poop, yeah. but about the, about the, um, you said things had to change. You had to, you had to reshuffle your priorities and, and put the kids first. Yeah. How did you, how did you keep the farm running while you, while you made those changes in priority? Well, I think a lot of it was actually a mental shift because in my mind, every morning I have this to-do list and the to-do list doesn't really take into account these two little kids because I'm thinking like a farmer. And, and so then I load up the kids and here we are at the farm and the to-do list is not getting done because I'm dragging through the day with these two kids that need me. And, and I was constantly feeling frustrated and just, Oh, I could never get enough done. I could never cross things off the list, all the things off the list. And, and that frustration, like that mental space that I was in, I think was really the worst part of the day. Not so much the fact that the stuff didn't get done. I mean, yes, it all needs to get done, but you never get it all done no matter what. Um, so I, I sort of just had to take a breath and realize it's okay. It's, I have to, A, like pare back the expectations a little bit about what I'm going to get done and know that it's getting done. I have a phenomenal full-time employee and a couple of part-time people in the summer who also help out and totally competent and do a great job. And, you know, I, I think you just a lot of us carry this sense that we need to, to be there and be, be part of the team in a really hands-on way, at least at the scale we're farming at. And, you know, I've made a conscious choice that I like the scale, I like being in the field and being hands-on. And I also like having the management responsibilities, but I don't want to lose touch with the field work. Um, and so I just, yeah, I had to relinquish some of that expectation that I was going to do as much field work and, and, yeah, it all got done. You know, it's, <laughs> it's okay at the end of the day. So not to say that I was able to stop being frustrated on, you know, in a given day or um, feel like there were certain things that really needed to be taken care of and couldn't because of the kids. But, but both of the kids are still alive. They're still alive. I, yeah. I, <laughs> You didn't lose anybody in the broccoli field or, or <laughs> is your husband involved with the farm? No, not at all, actually. So he's an acupuncturist and he has his own clinic um, about 20 minutes north of where we live and his own, his own business. So we actually have, you know, two totally separate businesses. Um, we do share some clientele actually, but he, uh, he does his thing and I do mine and we have, we actually have separate finances because it's sort of complicated with two businesses. So we're very independent financially and business wise. Um, and I don't know, kind of like my business arrangement with my mom and my sister, it, it works really well. I, you know, I sometimes think, well, what would it be like to farm with your partner? But someone once told me, Oh, don't get your money where you get your honey. So <laughs> I think that it, it takes, it takes away certain stress that would be implicit in our relationship if he was part of the farm as well. But it also means that, you know, he's not as much part of the farm. So in, in that idyllic utopian image of the family farm with this, you know, it, it's, it's a different setup we have. We've got my mom and my sister and I, and oftentimes all the kids, my sister has a, a five-year-old as well. So there's, you know, cousins and siblings and, and all the rest, grandparents, um, just no husbands in the picture. <laughs> it's got to be a little bit intimidating for the males in yeah. your lives. <laughs> they just, they just 
give us our space. You know, they, they steer clear and figure we got it handled. And I shouldn't say that they're never part of the farm. I mean, we will do things that they, they fold into, like make an apple cider every fall. And, you know, some of the more celebratory fun aspects of, of the you, you, you let them participate yeah. in some of the events. <laughs> but yeah, for the most part, we, we just do it, do it our way. <laughs> So Zoe, we're going to stop here and, and get a word from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Vermont Compost Company, helping plants make sugar from sunshine since 1992. In the wild, where our crop plants' ancestors evolved their microbial partnerships, plants are provided with nutrients from the soil through the work of partner microbes in their employ. Wide-ranging roots reach an abundant supply of nutrients and microbes, even in less than ideal conditions. And now that you've gone and stuck that seed in a little tiny container, it has to get everything it needs right there in a few cubic centimeters of soil. By providing compost-based potting soils chock full of microbial partners and humus-bound nutrients, Vermont Compost ensures that your plants have what they need consistently. And now, through December 21st, Vermont Compost's pre-buy program can help you get what your plants need at the best price, with the best shipping options, delivered at a time that works best for you. Plus, their Shared Truckloads program organizes shipping to other regions in ways that get shipping prices down to the level you'd pay right there in the great state of Vermont. Makers of living media for organic growers since 1992. VermontCompost.com The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by BCS America. A BCS two-wheel tractor is the only power equipment a market gardener will need. With PTO-driven attachments like the rototiller, flail mower, power harrow, rotary plow, snow thrower, log splitter, and more. You name it, and you can probably run it with a versatile BCS two-wheel tractor. The first time I used a rototiller way back in 1991, it was mounted to a BCS two-wheel tractor and it spoiled me for life. When you get behind a BCS, you can tell that it's built to the same commercial standards as four-wheeled farm tractors. I've used other tillers and mowers and spent most of the time thinking about how much easier it would be with a BCS. On my own farm, we went through a number of so-called solutions before we finally got smart and bought a BCS. And even though we owned a four-wheeled tractor to manage our 20 acres of vegetables, the BCS tackled important jobs that we couldn't do with the larger machine, from mowing steep slopes and around trees to working in our high tunnels. Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and attachments. All right. And welcome back. We're here with Zoe Bradbury of Valley Flora. Um, Zoe, we've talked about, we, I guess we kind of talked about a lot of soft stuff here, you know, family and kids and relationships and getting back to the farm. But can you tell us some about, about the actual farm itself, uh, acres and crops and horses and tools and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. So the farm is a total of 90 acres, 50 of that, or I guess 40 of that is in timber and actually kind of unmanaged at the moment. Um, We're a little busy to be timber barons also, but it's in the long-term goals to be managing that sustainably, hopefully with, with my draft horse. Um, And then we've got about 30 acres in pasture, mostly hillside pasture. And the balance about 20 acres is in bottomland right along the river. And so that obviously is where our primo row crop ground is. Um, We're currently farming half of that bottom ground. Um, It's an orchard, very, very diverse orchard, um, apples, pears, plums, Asian pears, quince, cherries, peaches, you name it. Um, blueberries. We've got perennial cane berries, Marion berries, berries, loganberries, thornless blackberries, 
um, a lot of strawberries, which we grow actually as an annual kind of California style. And then all kinds of annual vegetable, vegetable row crops, every kind of the whole produce aisle, everything that we can grow in this climate, which is most things, not, not okra, not, not bananas, not things like that, (laughs) but (laughs) most of the stuff that you would expect in, in a temperate maritime climate. Um, and then my mom's got a small herd of sheep. I have one draft horse used to have a team, but lost one of them a couple years ago to colic. So I'm, I'm uh, just using a single horse these days. And we're definitely a mixed power farm. So we've got a, a diesel tractor, an electric ACG cultivating tractor, and the horse, and a bunch of horse-drawn implements, and then all of the, the hand tools you would expect on an organic small-scale farm. Um, and our farm markets to a host of restaurants, stores, we have a CSA, that's you know half of what we do. And then we've got a, a really great and growing farm stand and UPIC enterprise that um, was sort of the surprise of the whole enterprise. Um, I, I started growing strawberries. That was one of the main things I focused on right off the bat after I saw how potentially lucrative they could be when I worked for a farmer down in California. And um, I started leaving, I'd leave the strawberries in for two years. And I, I, that second year, I had all these second year berries that aren't as big or as productive. So I started opening it up to you pick by appointment. And there's really no other you pick in our area. And there really aren't a lot of other farms of of this type either. Um, Our coastal climate really pushes most of the agriculture in the direction of livestock, cranberries, um, hay, but not vegetable production. And so there were a lot of people who, you know, were excited to come get strawberries. And then it became a a self-serve thing. So we'd be open on certain days for certain hours and they could just come weigh themselves out and it was all on our system. And then it just kept growing. And and at one point someone finally said, so where are the veggies? You know, I assumed all along that people wouldn't buy vegetables. I, I just figured they're coming for the sugar and because, you know, Southern Oregon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and then people started asking, so when are you going to have produce? And so I started harvesting, you know, a few bunches of that and a few bunches of this and putting it out and it would all sell. And it was all, again, like unattended self-serve honor system. So that went on for a couple of years. And then it finally got to the point where I was like, okay, this is, this is actually maybe worth staffing. <laughs> so we, um, we hired someone to be our farm stand attendant and that was, you know, maybe three or four years ago. And since then it's just, I mean, the farm stand business has grown exponentially. So the produce is a huge part of the farm stand now. It's, it's really cool. And we've got these, you know, loyal locals who, who come every single week, once or twice a week. And, and then there's always the summertime tourist passersby that'll come out. And the Yupik berries have maintained their popularity for sure. Um, so I added all those Marion berries and the, the, tra- the trailing cane berries um, to satisfy some of the Yupikers as well. And there's flowers, there's herbs, so they can come and, you know, get a handful of different things you pick and then stock up on their weekly veggies as well. So that, that farm stand operates um, basically from April through December and it, it is still self-serve April and May. And then the summer months from June through September, it's twice a week staffed full you pick. And then starting in October through the fall, it's just once a week. And by now the you pick is over because of the weather. And are you selling stuff that doesn't come from your own farm at the farm stand? Um, we have a neighbor who does pastured 
eggs. And so sometimes she'll bring a cooler of eggs up and we'll sell those for her. There used to be a great bread baker in the area and um, we'd sell his bread. So we've done some of that, but for the most part right now, it's just our stuff. Um, it just, it depends on sort of what the other local food entrepreneurs are up to and what their markets are like. But we, we definitely um, have made it one of our priorities to try to promote the other local food businesses in our area as much as possible, largely through the CSA. Um, I write a weekly newsletter and, you know, we'll, we'll pump the broilers or the, you know, the heritage turkeys that are getting ready to be slaughtered for Thanksgiving or whatever, whatever local food stuff we can. Um, we also have, you know, local sustainable fisheries in our neck of the woods. So there's a fish CSA that we've promoted and have acted a, a little bit as a, a food hub for some of these products. Like we sell the, the neighbor's eggs through our CSA as egg sharers. Um, my my employee's sister has a restaurant and she makes homemade tamales. So we actually sell tamale shares through our CSA as well. Cool. Yeah. Once a, once a month frozen tamale share. Um, so yeah, stuff like that. And as a result, it's, it's been pretty cool to see the local food system really, really grow legs in this area. This, you know, this area where they said, no one's going to buy that yuppie food. <laughs> Southern Oregon. Langlois, our little town has really become this hotbed of great local farm direct food. Um, I well, mean, and maybe we should have set the stage earlier for Southern Oregon, um, yeah. you know, for people that aren't familiar, but it's not, I mean, you guys don't really have any big cities down there. No, no. I mean, you're talking towns of maybe, you know, eight and 16,000 people. Oh no, that's not even that big. I mean, well, okay. Coos Bay is an hour North and that's the biggest coast, the coastal town. I think it's got like, you know, 30,000 people, but where we are, I mean, Langlois has 400 people and Port Orford to the South has a thousand and Bandon to the North has like 2,500. It's, it's really rural and Yeah. Yeah, it, it's not, I mean, it's it's certainly not the place that I would look and expect to see what you guys are doing, actually actually taking off. And right. and it doesn't seem like just just making it. You guys seem like you're, you're thriving or doing something close to that. Yeah, no, it's profitable. And I think, you know, we're all making a living doing it. I, I think part of what, part of the magic is the fact that there, there isn't another farm right next door doing the same thing. Um, not, I'm not saying we have a monopoly. I think we're pretty fair in our pricing, but um, I'm sure that helps because it drives any local interest to us unless they want to, you know, get in the car and drive three hours to the Valley to, to the Willamette Valley or the Roseburg area to you pick or find some, some farm food there. Um, so it's, I think that's something for people to consider when they're thinking about wanting to start up a farm, it seems like a lot of people always want to be just an hour outside of Portland or, you know, somewhere in striking distance of these local food meccas. And I think there's really a lot of opportunity to be had in these, these smaller, more out of the way places that aren't served by farms like ours yet. Um, and I just, I think that there's been such a cultural shift in in a decade, even in the amount of time I've been farming, um, where there's a huge new awareness about local farms and local food and getting it straight from the source. And it, I think it makes it a lot easier to enter into these less obvious potential markets. Do you feel like there's things that you've done particularly well that have helped to grow that local market for you? Well, I think we've just stayed really focused on quality and and kindness, <laughs> you know, it's, it's when you live in a small town, 
word travels fast and it really matters to treat people well and have integrity in business. And so we do that on one hand by just making sure the food that we send out is top notch and, and then just make sure that the interactions that are had with all of the people who support us are, are good ones as much as possible, you know? So I think, yeah, it just slowly built a reputation and a, and a, a presence that's a positive one. How much do you guys emphasize in that, in that marketing environment, your, that you're an organic farm and, and I don't, and let me just, I should, I should ask, are you guys certified organic? No, we're not certified. You know, we're, we're, okay. we're in that category of farms that have chosen not to be certified, but do everything as if they were. Um, so we, we don't really, well, you know, legally we can't say we're organic. So when we describe our growing practices to people, like we have a, you know, a chalkboard at the farm stand that says our growing practices and basically we grow as if we were organic, but we're not third party certified, blah, blah, blah. Um, so yeah, we let people know, but it's not, it's not like big front and center boom, trying to make that the, the thrust of our marketing. I think the local thing is just as important to people around here. And maybe that's, maybe I can say that knowing that they know we're, we're in integrity with organic standards because they come to the farm and they see what we do and they know us personally or have a long-term relationship with the farm. But if we were selling, say, to, you know, wholesale market, like to New Seasons in Portland or, you know, some grocery chain farther flung from where we are, I would, I would think we would really need that, that TILF stamp or that USDA organic stamp. Um, but we really have made a conscious decision to just market within about 50 miles of the farm. We go about as far north as Coos Bay and as far south as Gold Beach, um, both of which are within that 50 mile range. And a big part of that is just because we don't want to spend all that time on the road driving food around, um, both in terms of the quality of life that that <laughs> brings upon you and just the ecological impact of it. So we've been fortunate enough that the scale that we've we've honed in on at the farm is, is a good one for that 50 mile market area that, that we've plugged into. So I'm curious, you mentioned earlier that you've got the draft horse on the farm. Yeah. Um, the, the Alice Chalmers G and then, and then the diesel tractor. Um, it seems to me like a lot of times you, you know, if you were making decisions about how to get things done, that the, the tractor or the G are almost always going to be faster yeah. than the draft horse. Yeah. Um, how do you, where, where do you fit the draft horse into your operation? Cause I feel like that's kind of an important, an important thing to you. Yeah, it is. It's a, it is a Maude is the mayor, my draft mayor. She's a Belgian and, um, I have just a huge passion for horses. I have since I was a little girl and used to ride and had saddle horses. So it was this, you know, very romantic dream of mine starting back when I was, you know, a teenager that I would. I would have this team of draft horses and I would farm with them. And, and it was partly because I grew up riding all the time in a recreational way. And then when I started getting interested in gardening and growing food, it was taking away from my riding time. And so I started thinking, well, maybe I could merge them and I could actually work horses in the context of growing food. Um, and it, but it, of course it was far fetched. I didn't know anyone who harnessed horses up and drove them around a the farm. And it wasn't until um, I actually left my job at Sylvia Island Organics. I had for the first time in years, I had a summer, an empty summer ahead of me with no plans. And I decided, you know, this is the time to go 
figure out if this is viable and if it's something I actually really do like. And uh, I ended up in Montana with this master teamster, Doc Hamill. And I spent uh, a couple months on his ranch on the front range, just, just south of Glacier National Park, basically, you know, tra- doing a work trade with him. I pulled noxious weeds and built fence line and tore down part of his barn and built it back up all in exchange for learning how to hitch and harness and drive horses. And I loved it <laughs> just like I thought I would. <laughs> and so I, I spent some more time with him over the next few years until he finally gave me his blessings to, to start looking for a team. And he helped me find Maude and Barney who were out in Spokane area um, and dragged them home. And actually kind of, I mean, it was in 2008. So it was the same year that I started up the whole farm. That was part of the stress for my mom. I'm sure it was like, Oh, great. I just, I, I kind of imagining the eye roll yeah, when you rolled exactly. in. Yeah. <laughs> oh, here she comes and she has 4,000 pounds of horse flesh in tow. Like, what? what the? <laughs> oh, so we, I mean, it was a steep learning curve, even though I had been, you know, learning from various teamsters and spent all that time with Doc to suddenly be fully responsible for my own two draft horses and all the equipment that I was trying to, you know, pull out of hedgerows and weld back together with friends help and, and then actually put them to use on, on a working farm, my first ever growing season. <laughs> I even roll my eyes like, Oh my God, if only I had been a little wiser, I would have waited a year or two, <laughs> but here we are. And, uh, I've learned a lot. <laughs> only had one runaway. I, proud of that. Um, and only a few broken pieces of equipment so far, but mod basically, you know, I, I went into it highly idealistic and trying to farm as with as few fossil fuel inputs as possible and use the horses as much as possible. But like you said, it, you know, it's like a half hour to hitch, hitch them up, harness them up and get them ready. And, um, and then there you go, you're out, you're out trying to get something done. And as you know, as a novice teamster, it's, all kinds of things can go wrong all the time <laughs> with the horse's behavior with, you know, it's usually all because of me doing something wrong and, and getting them flustered or in a mess. So yeah, there was, I, had a, I put a lot of pressure on myself those first couple of years around the horses. And, um, and then of course I get pregnant and suddenly I have this infant and I'm still trying to farm with horses and it starts to, you know, it starts to become somewhat clear to me, like, oh, maybe, maybe this is what gender roles were all about back in the day when people were farming <laughs> full time with horses. Like a little bit unsafe to strap your newborn baby to your chest and then get on the disc behind two draft horses and go to work. <laughs> so a lot shifted when I became a mom because in order to work the horses, I felt like to be safe, I needed to have childcare to watch my kids, my kid at that time, um, which suddenly meant that working the horses involved scheduling with someone, whether it was my mom or, or, you know, a babysitter. And then there's a time constraint put on your work with your horses, which inevitably makes you just a little bit tense and the horses pick up on that right away. So what I had to do was just back off from that, that pie in the sky expectation that I was going to be such a purist with horses and start using the tractor more and, you know, just kind of cave in to (laughs) that's that those, that's the series of decisions I made. Like if I want, I can't necessarily have it all to the hilt. Um, And so that's kind of where we're at with Maude at this point is that she, 
she plays actually a really crucial role in certain ways on the farm. She does things that no other piece of equipment can do. Like when leeks or Brussels sprouts get too tall for the G to straddle, we can get between them with Maud and a single row walk behind cultivator. And she actually does a far more thorough, better job than any set of cultivating sweeps we have can do. Um, Why is that? Well, it's, you know, maybe just the genius of this old equipment. I have this probably hundred year old walking walk behind cultivator and it's width is adjustable and it's just designed beautifully so that you don't really miss a spot with all the sweeps. Um, and I work with Roberto, my employee, so he drives the cultivator and I drive the horse and because he's completely focused on the cultivator, he can make little minor adjustments and boom, get that thistle or boom, catch that shepherd's purse, you know, that one outlying weed by steering the cultivator. So it's, it's a wonderful threesome that our, our team, the Roberto Zoe mod team, and we get a ton of work done in a really short amount of time. Um, so those kinds of things, no, nothing else could do. Um, and we can cultivate up until the last second in things like potatoes and before the squash closes in or, you know, in the weeks, like all those single row crops. In my artichoke patch, um, she's great in there as well. Asparagus, that's another place. I credit Maud with actually having made our, our asparagus patch profitable because, you know, beating back weeds in an organic asparagus patch is... <laughs> quite a endeavor. <laughs> I just gave up on yeah, that. In my, yeah, in my I remember when I planted it, I, after I planted my asparagus into, you know, a newly turned bit of sod, I contacted the perennial weed specialist at Washington State University. And I said, so what kind of um, research do you have about weed control in, in organic asparagus? And he said, oh, well, unless you have eradicated the entire weed seed bank from wherever you're planting them before you plant them, I don't even bother. <laughs> and of course, you know, mine are already in the ground and oh God, he was probably right, but we persevered and now we've got this super clean weed, mostly weed free asparagus. And I think being able to run through it with mod just over and over and over and a few other things we did um, has, has made it work. So she also does, uh, so she does a ton of cultivation for us in the, in May and June primarily. And then, um, I use her a lot in the fall for cultipacking and all my cover crop seeds because we get much better germination when we get that nice soil to seed contact from the cultipacker. So that's just one of the sort of Zen things I get to do with her in September and October is, you know, roll all over the, the farm with her and bring that cover crop up and, it's it's wonderful. That's those are some of my favorite days on the farm. They 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 still are, and unfortunately, they're not as frequent as I'd like. But I I hold you know I hold high hopes that as my kids get older and my life loosens up a little bit in that way, I'll be able to work with horses again a lot more. So Zoe, do you actually live there on the farm? I mean, I, you mentioned that it's a separate house, but is it is it part of the the farmstead there? No, we actually live about two and a half miles down the road in in Langlois, the bustling burb of Langlois, population 400. Um, and that was something that I I originally really struggled with because I had I had held this fantasy, of course, of you know the 
quintessential farmstead where you live right there and your warm barn is just across the farmyard and <laughs> your fields spread out all around you. And But the fact is, you know, the house where we grew up in, my mom lives there. It's her house. And when Abby and I both ended up back here, um, she made it really clear that this is my house and no, you don't get to live here. <laughs> so <laughs> she and I actually both ended up buying houses in Langlois a couple miles down the road. And at first, you know, I actually secretly cried for the first two weeks of getting the keys to this place. It's it's a cool old house. It's like from the 1870s. It's the old school house in Langlois. And, um, but it's, it's not what I had pictured. And we got the keys and then literally maybe two or three weeks later, got on an airplane and flew to Italy for the 2010 Terra Madre gathering. Um, we got to go as delegates and we stayed outside of Torino at this little agriturismo and had this great epiphany while I was in Italy, which was that nobody really lives on their farm here in, in Italy. You know, most people live in these little villages up on the hill and then they commute down to their, their field. And it was really helpful because it really helped shift the paradigm for me and made me realize when I came home, like, Oh, I live in the village and how sweet, you know, my kids preschool is across the street and I can ride my bike down to the, the diner or the post office or the market real quick. And so it was useful because I think, you know, in this day and age, it, there's, it, it's not that everyone gets to live that, that idyllic little farm scene that we imagine or see in the, in the storybook. Um, all, everyone's got all kinds of creative arrangements these days in order to get access to land. So it was good to come to peace with that at a personal level and realize that maybe it's also good sometimes to have a little distance from the place because I'll stop working. Well, and I know that when I, when I sold my farm and moved to town, it was like, Oh my God, everything was so easy. <laughs> I mean, you you want food? You go to the grocery store. Right. You know, I mean, it's like, I mean, in, I mean, I guess in some ways, you know, it's what? not much for self. A grocery store, a yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I have to I mean, admit, I, I do suffer from the disease a little bit. Like, I I come home and we actually have almost two acres here, and we have a big horse barn because the people we got it from were major 4-H folks, and so Maud actually winters here close, close to home. And, um, you know, I have a garden at home and I have a chicken coop and I, I, I sort of am creating that little storybook fairy tale here in my backyard, but in the middle of town and not connected to the whole farm <laughs> elsewhere. So it's maybe my thwarted, my thwarted fantasy manifesting itself in, in its own special way. But I do think there is something about having that that separation. When we went to Terra Madre in, um, I think it was 2004, the we stayed with with a family who farmed, but it was in an apartment in town, you know, up on like the fourth floor. Yeah. And and I remember just, I mean, I it was kind of a shock yeah. to me. But you could also you did get that sense, you know, when you're home, you're home. When you're at work, you're at work. And yeah. and. Uh, I mean, I know just even having an office in the house um, was always enough and still sometimes is to just work as sort of my default uh -huh. setting. Yeah. And, and I've had to, I've had to work really hard to shift my focus. Uh, you know, now I've got a 13 year old daughter and living with a partner to, to say, okay, I, I'm closing the door, right. but, you know, and I think it's really hard to close the door on the farm. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that's something that, you know, especially because my partner, my husband doesn't farm, and it sometimes creates a little bit of tension in our household because it, to him, it's like, what, what you're, you're doing what now at this hour? You're, why can't you just not work? Why do you have to bring it home with you? And, but I don't know. I think that there's, there's things about being a farmer that you don't, you, you don't ever get unless you are fully immersed in farming. And there's always something to take care of, whether it's on the computer or in the field. Yeah. Attending to that QuickBooks. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, Zoe, let's turn here to our lightning round that we do at the end of every show. And the first question I'd like to ask you is what's your favorite tool on the farm? I think it's that walk behind cultivator I described to you that mod pulls. Honestly, it's for a few reasons. I mean, it's just such an elegant, beautiful piece of old equipment. Um, it gets so much work done for us and the actual process of using it is so joyful and fun that it's just a, uh, you know, my mom always said that men have to be decorative, functional, and entertaining. Those are like the three criteria <laughs> for a good one. And I think that's kind of true of that tool. You know, it's beautiful to behold. It is incredibly functional, and we laugh while we're using it. So there you go. That's so great. Is Tell us a little bit of, more about the tool, if you can help us visualize it here. Yeah, it's on the radio. <laughs> right. So it's basically imagine like um, you've got two like plow handles. It's shaped like a plow, that sort of V shape with the handles coming back towards you. And then the belly of this tool has a combination of shovels and sweeps on it. And it has a lever that you can adjust that pushes it out wider or squinches it in narrower, depending on your row width. And it's built in such a way that even when it's at its widest setting, you still don't miss anything in that path. Um, so there's a pretty wide shovel sweep in the back and then uh, a series, like another shovel in the front, a sweep in the front, and then some other um, little shovels in between. And, and so you're really cultivating down be between two rows at a time. Um, yeah, right. So basically the furrow, okay. you're, you're able to pass through the furrow and it's too wide to go, to go, you know, in any bed that's planted to more than one single line on our bed spacing. We're on, um, 42 inch centers. And so all of our single row crops, it works really, really well with, but if we get into anything closer, like a two line or three line crop, then it would take out the, the outer rows of those beds. So we're limited in the single line aspect, but that might be something that can, you know, continues to be more and more useful because we're actually currently doubling the footprint of the farm. So we have another, you know, nine, eight, nine acres of bottomland that's been pasture. And right now we're in the process of converting it over for, for cash crop production starting next season. So with that extra space, the main idea for us is to just be able to have an even better rotation on the farm not necessarily to increase production too much, but to, you know, be able to fallow and cover crop in the summer and more of that. So we might have a little more room for more single row crops as well, which would mean more work for mod. More work for mod. And, mm -hmm. and it sounds like a little bit easier for the weed control for you. Yeah. 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 All right. Uh, what's the last book that you read? The last book that I read, I'm going to have to think about this for a second. I just finished. That's probably a really evil question to ask to somebody that's got a 10 month old and farms. <laughs> oh, 
Well, there you go. It, it says a lot. The fact that I can't even remember because I have nursing brain, you know, it puts like, sponge <laughs> holes in your cerebellum. It was a novel. I'll say that though. <laughs> Obviously left a really big impression on me. <laughs> so when that, so when that nursing brain creeps in and, and, and you need, you need information, um, what's your favorite resource to turn to? Well, we have this really awesome farmer to farmer network in the Northwest. I don't know if you've heard of this, but it's, it's a group that gets together once a year for an actual face to face gathering up at Brighton Bush hot springs, which is not a bad place to get together in the winter and soak in the, soak in the thermal pools and talk farming. Um, and then we're connected year round by an email listserv and you can post to that anytime with any question. And usually you get a whole host of awesome replies from farmers that you may know or may not, depending on how new they are to the network. Um, and because we have this actual, you know, face, FaceTime with each other in the winter, we have a pretty good idea of each other's operations. Usually there's slideshows at that gathering. And, and so when you hear back from them over email, it's in a context that you can picture and, and maybe have seen photos of or have had conversations about. So that's usually the first place I go to. And it's, it's awesome. It's just such a great, great resource to have these real on the ground farmers who are doing great innovative things that have probably been through whatever you're going through or solved the problem you're trying to solve. And, there's awesome, awesome conversations that come out of those, those listserv interactions. And is that something that anybody in, in your area can be a part of? Well, it's, the event itself is limited by, by Brighton Bush's occupancy. And so it's actually kind of, um, kind of a limited gathering face to face. I don't know if you, you can be part of the listserv without having been to the conference, but I'm not sure. It's a good question. And what's your favorite crop to grow? My favorite crop to grow, it might well be fennel. I love fennel. It's just such a beautiful plant for one. And then I personally love to eat it. And I have, it's one of the things that I've really made an effort to extend the season on as much as possible on the farm, just so that I have it to eat. (laughs) (laughs) And it's ironic because it's, it's one of the things that I really have to to make an effort and coach my CSA members to like, because a lot of people recoil from that subtle black licorice hint. Yeah. Especially if they've had a bad experience with Uzo at some point in their life. And, and I'm always, you know, I'm always singing its praises and trying to get them to love it. And I've, I've determined that in CSAs, there's, um, there's real polarity around certain vegetables. And one of them is fennel. There's like fennel lovers and fennel haters. And there's not a lot in between. And the same thing with beets. They just love them or they hate them. So I don't know how many I've converted to fennel, but I keep trying. And any, any great tips for prospective fennel growers out there? One of the things that I learned actually kind of by accident with fennel is that it's one of those resurrection plants. So you, you can cut, cut it down and cut the whole bulb. And then if you leave that stump there, it'll grow back a whole bunch of baby fennels. And so actually sometimes full-size fennels. So if you, you know, just didn't have enough time to get through with the, the tractor and till it under, it actually will, will yield a whole other crop for you. So that's one way we've, we've extended our fennel season is to just leave the stumps and 
you know, usually they're co-planted with our beets, like at the top of a beet bed, because we can't grow. We have 220-foot beds, so we can't grow and sell a full bed of fennel at one whack at our, our scale. So we just plant, you know, a quarter of a bed with the beets, and then the beets are there longer anyway, so we just leave the stumps, and they come back around with a whole other crop of fennel. So then we can sell baby fennel for twice as much per pound, and you didn't even have to <laughs> bend over to plant it <laughs> the second time. <laughs> <laughs> which is especially nice when you yeah. have a baby on your back, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. And what does Valley Flora want for Christmas? Oh my God. A sprinter van. We yeah. Have, we have, we have a, you know, like probably a lot of farms, we have this whole fleet of used vehicles and all of them are named after whoever we bought them from. So our van is Frank named after the used car salesman and, and our, our flatbed is Richie Ha Ha, named after the really funny guy that we got our little Toyota from on, on, on Craigslist. And anyway, Frank, our van is not always reliable. And we've definitely had a few uh, rescue missions when the van is fully loaded with all the restaurant deliveries and CSA totes and it overheats on, on the big hill on the way to Coos Bay. And I could just live without that ever happening again. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah. I, it seems like a reasonable request of Santa. Yeah. I don't know if Santa has an extra 15 grand kicking around, but yeah. And finally, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? Oh, maybe something along the lines of take a deep breath. Life is long, hopefully, you know, as far as diving in and doing all of it at once, trying to manifest the whole big fat dream all in a year or two, it, it, you know, you start to realize like, Oh, there's, there's another year and another one after that, you know, for lucky and, uh, and it unfolds and it's ever, ever evolving. I mean, just when you think we've hit homeostasis, I mean, maybe for some people you would because of their personality likes, likes it to stay the same, but with my personality, I'm always kind of scheming and dreaming about how it could be better, how it could be more efficient, how it could be more profitable, how it could be more fun. Um, and so as a result, you know, it'll, it'll never be static and what a blessing because it keeps it really, really fun and inspiring every single year is a, is a new adventure. Zoe, thank you so much for being part of the Farmer to Farmer podcast today. Thank you so much for doing this. It's really great to listen to the other episodes and, and get a little glimpse into all these worlds. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 42 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast, and you can find the notes for this show at farmer to farmer podcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Bradbury. That's B-R-A-D-B-U-R-Y. I'm really excited to announce once again a series of workshops that I'm doing this fall on employee management. Employees make it possible to get more done, but managing workers and their work takes dedicated time, energy, and processes. I'll be presenting full day workshops on managing and motivating employees on the farm in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, this coming Monday, November 30th, and in Columbia, Missouri on Tuesday, December 8th. More information, including schedules and registration information at purplepitchfork.com slash betterboss. If you enjoy the podcast, I think you would also enjoy my weekly newsletter, The Flying Rutabaga. The Flying Rutabaga runs the gamut from practical templates for delegation to guidelines for watering transplants. You can sign up at farmertofarmerpodcast.com or purplepitchfork.com. 
And also, if you enjoy the show, it would be great if you would pop on over to iTunes and leave us a review or make a comment on the show notes or tell your friends on Facebook. These reviews and referrals are the bread and butter of making this show available to an ever wider group of listeners. And you know what else? I'd love to hear your suggestions for guests on the show. I know a lot of things, but I know that I don't know all of the great farmers out there. Zoe's a great example. Somebody, this was a referral from a referral. Please visit farmertofarmerpodcast.com and use the contact form to tell me who you'd like to hear. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.